our scripture lesson today, continuing in Exodus, is from chapter 13, verses 17 through 22. If you'd like to follow along in your Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. Once again, from Exodus, chapter 13, verses 17 through 22. Crossing the sea. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up and out of Egypt armed for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham, on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And just so, we've been preaching through Exodus, and just so a few of you um, who were wondering and already asked me, now we are going to take a break starting next week for Advent, and then we'll jump back in in chapter 14 in January. So you can look forward to that. But let's pray now as we turn to God's word. God and Father, I pray that you might just be speaking to us here in your word. That you might be teaching us how to follow after you, be with us sinners as we seek to walk with you, and with me, a sinner, as I seek to preach your truth. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So maybe the most common question I get as a pastor, at least one of the most common ones, is some version of how do I know God's will? In this specific situation, what does God want me to do? Should I marry this person? Should I take this job? How do I figure out what God is calling me to do? And on one level, I appreciate those questions because there's something good about them. It is obviously better for us to be asking that question than to say, I don't care what God wants, right? It's better for us to say, how do I know what God wants in this situation? And then to say, yeah, I'm good. But at the same time, that question can actually become really destructive for people. It can leave them in a place of crippling indecision. I remember a guy I knew in college who really liked this girl, and she obviously liked him, but he was just really convinced he needed some kind of sign from God to know whether he should date her and marry her or not. And so for like a year, he just like agonized, waiting for some clear word from God of whether he should do it or not. I remember one night actually telling him that I would gladly just risk being a false prophet and tell him God wanted him to ask the girl out if he would get over it. But, um, but we can be in that place of indecision. It can also, I think, leave us in a place of fear, the way a lot of us engage with that question. We can be so terrified about getting it wrong that we just fail to act. 
Or we can become convinced that maybe because we made some wrong choice back in the past that somehow our lives are irreversibly ruined in the present. We feel like some trains veered off the tracks somewhere. And I was thinking about all of that because um, I was reflecting on the text we read this morning. And I think a lot of us read it with some amount of jealousy. Because what we want when we ask about what God's will is, is basically what the Israelites had here in the desert. I mean, it is remarkable. If you read in verse 21, it says, By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. So Israel wakes up in the morning while they're wandering in the wilderness, and their question is, where are we going today? And the answer is, God's literally, visibly in front of them showing them, right? Showing them the path that they should walk. And we can look at that and think, man, that would be nice. Now, it's worth noticing, even for the Israelites, that's actually— there's, a, there's limits even to what they get here in this story, right? It's not like when Joe, the Israelite kid, is deciding where to go to college. He, like, lays out his, you know, his admission letters and a pillar of fire appears over the right one, right? They're still, in most of life, having to sort it out. But nonetheless, we can still feel envious of the sort of leading they had in the wilderness. What I want to suggest this morning is that we don't need that. While Israel profits in this text from a certain direct, visible guidance of God, the truth is that God's will doesn't normally work that way. And so what I want us to do this morning is something a little bit different. Instead of just jumping into the text right away, first I want us to zoom out, and from Scripture as a whole, I want to try to answer two questions, which is, how do we know God's will, and how do we discern God's leading? And if the difference between those is unclear, it'll make sense when we get there. But we're going to ask those questions, and then we'll come back to this text at the end and talk about a few encouragements it gives. But the first question is, how do we know God's will? How do we know God's will? Well, let me start by offering an observation. When we talk about God's will, we tend to picture something like this. There is this dot this specific dot in any given situation, and that is God's will. He has this precise plan for what's going to happen. And that is true. God does have a specific plan in any given situation for what's going to happen. So, for instance, Psalm 139, this is how it describes God's control of the universe. He says, in part, You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know, Lord, know it completely. Right? Down to the level of what we're going to say before we say it. He has a plan. Or a few verses later, he says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So God numbers the days of our lives, writes them in a book almost, right? And that is a pretty precise and specific will. But this is where we need to make a distinction. When we talk about the will of God, there are really two different things we're talking about. There's two different ways we use the word. And that dot picture that we just have, that specific plan God has in any situation, that is what we're going to call God's sovereign will, okay? God's sovereignty means his rule and control over all things. And he has a sovereign will where he's written every page of the book of the universe. But that is not a book that we ever get to read. 
one of the basic truths about God's sovereign will is that it is hidden from us. So we just don't get to access it. Like the Apostle Paul, if you remember in Romans, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? You, just, you can't get into God's mind. You don't know what his plans are. Or Jesus, he's specifically talking about um, his return, but he gives it as a general principle. He says, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father sets by his own authority. We don't get access to God's sovereign will, period. Basically never. And that's actually, while that's, we wish we did, that's actually good for us. In the first place, because we couldn't function as free and responsible creatures if we knew what God's sovereign plans for every day of our lives was. And more than that, because God's ways, God will, it's just beyond us. God, who knows everything perfectly, all that was and is and is to come, every side of it, if we just tried to understand that kind of sovereign plan he has, it would melt our brains, right? Our heads would explode. So we don't have access to that. Instead, Scripture says that what we have access to is what we're going to call God's revealed will. God's revealed will, which is not what his secret plans are. Moses makes this distinction in the book of Deuteronomy between these two kinds of wills. Um, He says in Deuteronomy 29, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So you see, there's these secret things in the mind of God, and they're not for us. But what's for us is what God has revealed. And what is that revealed will? Well, first, like Moses said there, it includes his commandments. Normally, actually, when the Bible uses the language of God's will, that's what it means, is what he's commanded us to do. So like in Romans 12, Paul says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And he means like the things that are good and right to do, right? He's saying God's will is those things. Um, Or Paul puts it more bluntly in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, the will of God is your sanctification, your being holy, which is what the word sanctification means. God's revealed will is that we live holy lives and seek to obey his commands. So it includes that. And then it does also seem to include a sense of wisdom in Scripture. So, for example, Paul in Ephesians, he's calling them to be wise. And he says, summing it up, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So there's a sense of God also reveals principles of wisdom, and his world reveals kind of principles of wisdom, and we should seek to be wise. And that's it for God's revealed will. It is what he's commanded, and it's seeking to be wise. And that is all that we're supposed to worry about when we think about doing the will of God. Which is to say, let me try to visualize that. So God's sovereign will is a dot, like we said. Right? And that's true, but that is not something that we're responsible for or have access to. Instead, God's will in terms of what's revealed to us and what we're responsible works like this. There is this field of choices we have. This field of choices. And God's will, simply a field that then has two fences in it. There's two fences. On the one side is the fence of God's law. So when we ask, what is God's law? Or what is God's will? The answer is, don't cross the fence into what God tells us not to do. 
And then the other fence is what is wise. So also don't be a fool in the choices you make. And as long as you're between those fences, you are within God's will. Or, because that can be hard just in the abstract. Let me give you an example. I already mentioned a guy who's debating, like, am I supposed to marry this girl, right? And so what this would say is that there's two things he should ask. First, he should ask, what does the Bible command? Right? So, for example, Scripture calls us to, um, to marry people who are fellow Christians, right? So he should, you know, he should say, is this someone else who shares my love of Jesus with me? Um, he should ask, does this person display a godly character? Um, not, is she perfect? But, you know, I mean, is she seeking to follow Jesus and showing sort of love and humility in her life? Um, and there's a few other specific questions about that fence of God's law, like, is she married already? Which um, hopefully isn't going to be an issue, but, you know, I mean, like, yeah, so that's God's law, right? And then there's another fence of wisdom, which is to say there's questions like, well, are you attracted to her, and do you enjoy being with her? Because if, if, if the answer to those is no, right, marriage is going to be hard. Um, and there's maybe other some specific wisdom issues, like if, if one of them is $5 million in debt, I guess, or there's a 30-year age gap, that stuff you could maybe fit under wisdom. But you would say, okay, as long as you're not crossing those fences, then yeah, it is God's will that you can marry her. Or that you can choose not to. Both of them are actually allowed between those fences. Because the point of that view of God's will is freedom. There is freedom that we are allowed to walk in. Does that sound too simple? Well, we're going to say a little more in a minute. Um, because there is a second question about us wrestling with certain specific big decisions. But the important thing I feel like to say is that in Scripture, it is honestly that simple for the most part. Christian faithfulness is pictured as freedom. And that's part of what it means. You do not have to figure in exacting detail what God wants you to do. What you are able to do is to say, what's God's commands and seek to obey them? And then you're able to say, you know, what does wisdom say? And as long as you're walking between that, you can have the peace and rest of knowing that you are within what God has called you to do. God is not out to get you for things you don't know. I feel like that's often how we end up thinking, that I can't figure this out, but God's going to punish me if, if I don't get it right. And that's just not true. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he used to answer this question like this. He would say, how do you know God's will? He would say, well, you love God and then do what you want. <laughs> love God and then do as you please. Which is to say, first, love God is important, right? That's his way of articulating those fences. Seek to be living in a way that's loving God and seeking after him and his ways. And then just act and choose. And you have freedom in those choices. And that's the answer to how we know the will of God. All right. I said there's a second question, though, right? And that is how we discern God's leading. How do we discern God's leading? And like, like, like I kind of said, this is a layer on top of the first one. And the general principle is what we just said. I do not want to rob that general principle of truth. But there are times in life that we do confront particularly hard choices. And we feel like, man, I do want to come to the Lord and get as much kind of help in this choice as I can. Should, should I, you know, move away from friends and family to some other part of a country? Or should I, you know, should I make this big life decision? Should I go into the ministry? I know that's not a live one for most of you, but for me, right? This, that's one of those decisions that, that really was that kind of thing. So how do we 
be sensitive to the Lord's leading in those things? Well, first of all, let me suggest something that is generally not a good idea, which is that a lot of people who face those kinds of decisions tend to resort to looking for a sign from heaven. You know what I'm talking about? It's, it's like Gideon, the story of Gideon in the Bible where he lays out this fleece and he says, Lord, you know, give me a sign and let the fleece be dry and the ground around it be wet. And we tend to resort to those sorts of things when we're making big decisions. Now, I am not going to tell you you should never do that. But the problem is that every story of people asking for a sign from God in the Bible is not about them discerning God's leading, but rather about them refusing to follow it. Gideon actually knows what God wants him to do. God comes to Gideon and says, go take the Israelites and go to war with Midian, right? That all happened before the fleece. The point of the fleece is to, for Gideon to say, really, God? Like, I don't know that I trust you in that. And that, so he asked for a sign. So I'm not saying never, but that's not generally the way to do it. Instead, there's really just a process, a simple process that I think scripture would give us as we seek God's leading, which is first, you pray. Uh, you pray a lot <laughs> and say, Lord, give me what guidance you will. Open and close doors. And then you ask what your desires are and why. You examine your heart and what you want and what's going on. And you say, are these desires sinful? Are these desires righteous? Are they kind of messy, <laughs> which often they are? You look at your heart. And that can also include a kind of process of discerning your desires and testing them. For example, one of the things, um, like, like oftentimes people will say, like, does God want me to, like, lead this Bible study or step out in this way? And often part of that is just to say, well, maybe, like, try to lead a lesson, right? Try it out once, see, see how it goes, or test those gifts. So you do that, and then you seek input from other people. And I don't mean just the guys from Poker Night. I mean— Going and finding wise saints, people whose opinions you trust, and asking them for advice. Um, and uh, the Bible's full of encouragements that that's a really important step. Like from the book of Proverbs, it says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice, or listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. So we should seek other people's counsel. Um, and a lot of times that doesn't mean that they're just going to give us the answer, right? But even the questions those people ask and the perspective that they offer can help us get a sense of God's leading. So we do those things, though, and then we choose. We make the decision as best we can. Often at that point, I'm not—like, things are still unclear, right? We do that process as best we can, and then we decide. But it's important for us to recognize whenever we're talking about making decisions, following God's will, whatever, that, I mean, not choosing is always a choice, right? If, if the question is, should I go take this new job or not, if you refuse to make a decision, you are effectively making a decision. Um, in fact, the Bible does tend to just encourage you at that point to say, choose, and one of the best illustrations of that is that often in the Bible, do you know what they do when there's a decision that they can't make? They do what's called casting lots, which is to say, rolling a die. <laughs> um, like, like Judas betrays Jesus, and then after Jesus ascends, they need to appoint an apostle to replace Judas. And they go through this whole process of discernment and narrow it down to two guys named Joseph and Matthias, and they cannot decide between them. And so they flip a coin, and that's how they decide who's going to replace Judas, right? Now, I'm not saying do that all the time. I'm not saying every decision in life. 
But I am saying that part of the freedom we have is to say when the point comes to choose, you do your best, and then you just make a choice. And then one last point, biblically, which is that all of that done, we should always remain open. We should make a decision, but we should also be open to the Lord's leading in the future. Um, I mean, all of our choices should be in open hands. And it is often true that we might make a decision, and the Lord leads and works through that, and then a few years later we realize, oh, now the Lord's leading me in another direction. And the best way I know to illustrate that process of seeking the Lord's leading is just to talk about what it's like for me to be called to ministry and to have the sense that God has called me to ministry. Because I regularly get asked, how did you know that you were supposed to be a pastor? And I think people really expect that it's going to be like, you know, the, the clouds part and there's this face there, like in Monty Python, talking, you know, saying, you know, you're supposed to go be a pastor. And that's not how it works. So the way it worked is... Because of various factors in my life, younger me started thinking that maybe I should be a pastor. And so I started praying about it. And I started examining my heart and testing those gifts and seeing whether I felt like this was something I desired to do and whether I felt like this was something I was gifted to do. And at the same time, I asked other people into that process and said, is this something I'm gifted to do? Because we're often not a very good judge of that. Um, yeah, and so I would work and do different things, you know, teach Sunday school classes, preach, minister to people, and over several years, um, it seemed like this was something we were called to, and so we chose to pursue it <laughs> and go to seminary. Um, and it really is, in a sense, that simple. Now, obviously, there was a lot of prayer and wrestling, but that's what seeking the Lord's leading usually looks like, is that kind of process. And then, at the end... I still today try to leave those choices with an open hand. I mean, I love what I do, and I'm going to do it as long as I can, but I also know pastors who get so attached to their sense of calling that they don't have that openness to say, like, I'm going to stay open if the Lord leads somewhere else. So that's what the process looks like. And again, um, that is not a method of 100% certainty. In fact, I think that... um, like, I really think that if, if I had sought the Lord's leading and tested those things and concluded that, like, I should do one of the other things I was thinking about doing, like be a teacher or a lawyer or something, I could find fulfillment in serving Jesus in that, too, right? It is not the case that, that we have some 100% certain thing, but we're walking in freedom even as we seek after God's leading. So, that's the questions. Then let's finish up by, with just a couple of encouragements I find as we try to do that from our story here in Exodus. First of all, as we seek to follow God's will, this story has an encouraging sense that God knows our limits. As he leads us through life, he recognizes our weaknesses and what we can truly endure. So in verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, Though that was shorter, for God said, if they face war, they might change their mind and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert toward the Red Sea. And Israel went up out of Egypt, ready for battle. So let me show you a map first. If you go right towards the Promised Land from Egypt, you go through Philistia, where the Philistines live. And they're not one of the Canaanite tribes that Israel is supposed to fight in the land. They're another nation although they have a long, thorny um, conflict with Israel in their future. But the point is that God recognizes that the brutality of war with the Philistines would be 
too much for the Israelites' faith. Now, importantly, it is not too much for God, right? God has zero problem beating any enemy himself. It is not that he couldn't defeat the Philistines, um, but that Israel is not in a place where they're prepared yet to trust God in that conflict. And there's really, there's two things, really, that are encouraging about that. One is that God is dealing with the people. He's mindful of their weakness as he does it. He doesn't expect them to be superhuman. He doesn't even expect them to be free from sin. He makes provision for them in their limitations. Now, to be clear, what I am not saying in that is that God won't call us to hard things. Don't hear that when I say God knows our limits. In fact, um, it's guaranteed that God will call us to hard things in life. I mean, in the first place, just staying between those fences is actually really hard, right? Um, And will often be challenging and costly. And the Lord will call us to hard things to grow us. But the comfort we have is that even as God leads us in those ways, he recognizes what we can take within himself. And he will not crush us. The Apostle Paul, he's specifically focusing on the question of temptations we will face. But he gives this as the principle. And it's true in general. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except what's common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So God knows our limits. At the same time, um, that, that image of Israel in the desert gives me another hopeful note too, which is that God promises his faithfulness. Although it's something we have to take on faith. God promises his faithfulness. And to see what I mean, let me show you that map again. Except this time... Here's the path that Israel actually took in the desert. And here's the thing about that path. We know why God led them that way, right? Because of the Philistines. There's no indication in the text that God told that to Israel at the time. (laughs) Um, This is Moses writing years later. All Israel knows is this pillar of cloud is moving, and we're following it. And the, the course that it's taking them on is not towards the promised land. It is really roundabout. And so they must have wondered, as they were wandering down south in, you know, in the wilderness there, what is going on? And that's understandable. But it's also wrong, because at the same time that God is leading them in this way, he's giving them this really visible sign of his faithfulness. So if you look at verse 19, it says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath, And he had said, God, it will surely come to your aid. And then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. So 430 years before this, right? Like four centuries. That's like before the United States existed as a nation, right? Compared to today. Um, Joseph had come down to, to, to Egypt with the original 70 people that became Israel. And he said, the Lord is going to bring us out of Egypt and back to the promised land. So don't bury me until then. Keep, you know, don't bury my bones here in Egypt, but take them back with you. And a long time passed in between. And people had to think, like, why in the world are we keeping these bones, right? Like, it's never going to happen. Like, that's, that's over. That was centuries ago. But now, finally... While God's fulfillment took a long time, and that's something we talked about last week, if you, if you were here, he is fulfilling it and proving himself faithful. That Jacob's faith was not in vain, but he is right that the Lord will not leave Israel there, but he's bringing them out and bringing them back to that land that he had promised. See, those processes of knowing God's will that we described, we said they're freedom, 
but they're also really fuzzy, right? And that's why we struggle, because we're like, man, I'm just uncertain about this. And that's where we need the encouragement that God is faithful. Or to put it in the terms we used earlier, that God does have a sovereign will, too. And while I don't get access to that, he is able to work it as I seek to walk within his revealed will. God is at work in the world. And even though we feel like often I'm just like bumbling about and I don't know what's going on, (laughs) really where I'm going, God is through that bumbling path working out his good plans. I remember once seeing a story about this mother who was an artist. And she would have her, like, two-year-old son make these scribble drawings on canvases. And then she would sit down with the canvases and paint them to turn them into these paintings. Um, And that, I think, is what God is like. (laughs) That is to say, as we seek to follow his will, we are just kids scribbling on the canvas, right? But God, in his sovereign power, is able to work those beautiful paintings from our lives. As we walk in freedom and seek to follow his will, he's doing that in us. So God promises his faithfulness. And then one last note as we think about following God, which is simply that God is with us. This story reminds us that God is with us. So if you look back at verses 21 and 22, It says, By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud nor the pillar of fire left its place from in front of the people. And we talked about that back at the beginning, right? That's what's happening. But it's worth bearing in mind, it's not just that this pillar of cloud and fire is a sign of where Israel to go. It's actually pictured as God's presence, right? The Lord is this pillar of cloud somehow before his people. And that actually, that theme gets picked up as the story proceeds. Um, Spoilers for later in Exodus, but Israel ends up building this tabernacle, this house that's pictured as this place where God can dwell in their midst. And what happens then in Exodus 40, when the tabernacle's done, it says, then the cloud, which is this pillar of cloud, The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during their travels. So this pillar of cloud now is not just out in front of them, but it's actually dwelling in the middle of the camp of Israel. It's this picture of God dwelling and being with his people. And in the morning it would go out and lead them, and at night it would settle back on the tabernacle. And that continues throughout the Old Testament. When they build the temple later as a replacement for the tabernacle, there's this vision where this, you know, the the cloud of God's glory descends on the temple and, you know, and rests there in the most holy place. And then um, before the exile, when God passes judgment on Israel and they're led away into captivity, the prophets have these visions of that cloud leaving the temple, of God departing in judgment. And, um, And then when we come to the New Testament, finally, we see that imagery picked up again. But it's really a remarkable claim that the New Testament makes. Because its claim is that it's no longer just that cloud of glory dwelling in the temple, but rather it is God dwelling even nearer. As the Apostle Paul puts it, Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? That's where Paul's actually taking the imagery. He's saying that cloud that went out before Israel, that dwelled in their midst in the tabernacle, that is now what is in us. 
through the Holy Spirit as we trust in God. He is actually much nearer to each of us as we walk with him than he was to Israel in this story. Our capacity to do God's will rests on our belief in that fact. That we walk forward in faith because we know that God is with us and moving and carrying us forward. And I can't think of a better image of that than the one in this text. Think about it from this angle instead of what we've kind of been talking about. So Israel gets up in the morning and this pillar of fire and cloud goes before them and they walk forward behind it. And that means to an Israelite experiencing it that somewhere in the back of their mind they had the realization that every step they were taking was a place that God had just been. That as they walk behind the pillar of cloud, it's as if, the, you know, it's as if this God passes and this ground is made holy and Israel is then walking on it behind him. God's presence transforms their journey and it transforms ours as well. As we walk forward with God, with us and before us, we have that comfort that even though we don't know necessarily what's going to happen, God is there. And that's the thought I'd like to leave us with. I don't know a better way to summarize it than with these words of an old hymn, which is not a familiar hymn. Otherwise, it's not in our hymnal or anything, or I would have had us sing it. But um, but this is one of the most beautiful summaries of all of that truth about God's will that I know. So verse 1, it says, I do not ask to see the way my feet will have to tread, but only that my soul may feed upon the living bread. Tis better far that I should walk by faith close to his side. I may not know the way I go, but oh, I know my guide. And in the second verse, I think even better, and if my feet would go astray, they cannot, for I know that Jesus guides my faltering steps as joyfully I go. And though I may not see his face, my faith is strong and clear. That in each hour of sore distress, my Savior will be near. That is what we walk in. God is with us. He is faithfully working through us. He is safeguarding our paths. And as we seek to obey and follow him, we are being led in his will. Let's pray. God, Father, I pray that you would give us the comfort and the confidence that we are walking in your will. I pray that you would guide us, work through us, and give us the the joy of knowing that you are near. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.